Welcome and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most notable, the most high profile, heinous homicides and murders in Maryland are examined, they're profiled, and they are discussed. We are well into season four, and on this season, notorious murder-suicide cases in Maryland, those are the focus. These types of homicide cases is the whole theme for season four, and on this episode, the murder-suicide case of Donald Webb Jr. is profiled, and as in each episode, an unsolved homicide will also be profiled. And on this episode, the shooting death of 17-year-old John Crowder is examined. Now, you know, being a correctional officer, it's not easy. I mean, I know because I used to be one back in the day. I mean, the person you listen to every week, I didn't just wake up one day, become reckless, and just drove into true crime and criminals one day and was just like, oh, one day I want to write about uh, murders and criminals and crime and stuff like that. It didn't just happen overnight. True crime was something that I was into way back when I was a child. I mean, way back when I was a kid. Um, Even back then, I had a desire, a need, a passion, basically, to get inside of the criminal mind. I mean, I can't even explain it. I don't know why, but that was something that was always permeating in my mind. I mean, I really, really, I wanted to be like a teenage version of Jodie Foster. <laughs> Her character was in the movie Silence of the Lambs. I mean, if if a lot of people, if you haven't seen the movie Silence of the Lambs, it's an old school movie about Jodie Foster. She was basically profiling this, um, he was a, a cannibal and basically what she did was she had to get inside this criminal's head or whatever um whatever it was that she was doing in this movie i believe she was an fbi profiler but because you had to be squeaky clean and all that with no record or whatever i chose a different route to basically get into inside of a criminal's or murderer's mind Instead of becoming or trying to become an FBI agent or police officer or something like that, I chose the direct route and became a correctional officer to be directly in the line of fire. I mean, it was kind of still still dealing with law enforcement a little bit, still dealing with that criminal element mindset. I worked at the worst one. I worked at the Maryland Penitentiary, as it was called back then. Um, I had started there within days after my 21st birthday. I mean, back then, I don't know if they still do this, but I was given a choice of where I wanted to work at. You know, it was, I believe it was the Women's Detention Center. It was another detention center, a a medium security facility out in Hagerstown. And it was the maximum security facility called the Maryland Penitentiary, which was in downtown Baltimore. Now, I chose... I I deliberately chose an institution where I knew I would be close to inmates who were serving lengthy sentences for crimes like murder, rape, robberies, 
etc. I mean, I know from firsthand experience the stress, the paranoia, the, the lack of organization. I mean, as a CEO or correctional officer, you're supposed to be called, but we call them COs. The chief of the penitentiary would tell us every morning before our shift that any day working here, dealing with these violence, any day that you come in here, the chief would emphasize that any day you came in here, this could be your last day of being alive, working at this institution. I mean, you're you're literally stuck with that thought. You're, you're stuck with that thought as you basically babysit grown men day in, day out. It's a stressful job, which is why I didn't last day that long. I'm not even gonna lie. You got grown men or women whining all day like babies for whatever reason. Then you got the lazy ass sergeants or lieutenants who don't do shit all day but make the newer CEOs do all the work. They sit on their fat asses all day. Then you got weird shift hours working four days a week, three days off. I mean, sometimes mandatory overtime, shitty hours, not good enough pay, dangerous work conditions. I mean, it's enough to make anybody snap. It's enough to make anybody, you know, lose it, especially over time. And especially if this is your life for the past 17 years. Now, nobody knows the problems or issues that 48-year-old Donald was having in his marriage to his wife. His wife was 42-year-old Cynthia. His name was 48-year-old Donald Webb. I mean, they were having, there were never any reports of any physical abuse, but on the night of Friday, July the 27th, 2007, 48-year-old Donald Webb Jr., he decided that he was going to end his marriage. Whether he snapped, whether he planned it out, who knows? But Donald had worked as a correctional officer at the Baltimore City Correctional Center in downtown Baltimore. Now, the Baltimore City Correctional Center, that's a minimum security facility or jail that houses approximately 500 adult male inmates who are close to being released or they're on their way out the door, they're close to going home. Going home. You know, while housed there, while they're locked up, the inmates, they can earn their GED, they can take math, math classes, reading classes. I don't know if they can still do all of this, but they could back in 2007. Or they could even take writing classes. The conditions here at this jail, usually they aren't as bad or traumatic, I should say, as they are at the other surrounding institutions because here, you're basically winding your time down. You're basically on your way home. Inmates are usually low-key. So, like, why would you start tripping now if you're on your way out the door? Most inmates here, they're low-key and they're just ready to finish their time, ready to get back out on the street. Donald had worked his way up here, working his way all the way up from a regular CO to becoming a sergeant and then finally a lieutenant where he worked as a third ranking shift supervisor responsible for three levels or tiers of correctional officers. Donald reportedly had an excellent work record. He had a su superb work ethics. All of his co-workers said he, sh he showed absolutely no signs at all of being stressed out no signs of being paranoid. He showed no signs of mental illness or anything like that. 
he showed absolutely no signs of anything being wrong in his home or in his marriage. He showed nothing to the outside public, the outside world of anything being wrong. Absolutely no signs of anything being out of the ordinary. Protecting and guarding inmates had become his way of life. That was Donald's way of life and he worked at the institution for 17 long years. After Donald completed his shift at the detention center, he came to the row home that he shared with his wife in the 900 block of West Lombard Street. They had rented the home for eight years and although neighbors later reported to the Baltimore Sun that they never witnessed or heard any arguments or disputes between the two, on this particular night, tempers flared over and the couple argued viciously in an upstairs bedroom. Suddenly, Donald pulled out a handgun and shot Cynthia several times. After fatally shooting his wife, Donald jets downstairs where he sees his 13-year-old stepson. Donald had been involved in his stepson's life for most of his 13 years, but that didn't stop the dedicated correctional officer from turning the gun on his stepson and pulling the trigger. The boy was struck right in the shoulder. After shooting his stepson and leaving him for dead, Donald rushed out of the home, jumped in his blue 2006 Chevrolet pickup truck, and jumped on the interstate to get away from everything. Now imagine if that was you. Imagine you're a well-respected correctional officer. You're married and you're arguing with your wife. Maybe she's trying to leave you and you don't want her to. Maybe she found somebody else. Who knows? But imagine that you're so pissed, so stressed out, that you cannot control your actions and you pull out a gun and shoot her without any hesitation. You replay in your mind over and over and over and over the screams. You replay in your mind her body falling. You replay the words that you said. You replay the words that she said. You replay the whole argument over and over and over again in your head to make these thoughts worse. You think about pulling your gun on an innocent child. You think about what you did. A child who you helped to raise. You think about an innocent child who was simply just caught in the crossfire of your uncontrollable rage. Perhaps these thoughts just flooded all through Donald's mind as he drove aimlessly and pointlessly to no particular destination thinking about what he had done. Back at the home on Lombard Street, the police responded to the home around 11.20 p.m., 20 minutes after the shooting, after they got the first reports from the neighbors of them hearing gunshots. And once they arrived at the home, they found the bodies of Cynthia Hall and her son. Her son was rushed to John Hopkins in critical condition I'm sorry, they found the bodies of Cynthia Webb and her son. And her body was, her son was rushed to John Hopkins in critical condition with a bullet wound to his shoulder. But Cynthia was pronounced dead at the scene. Children who were disabled and had been given a rough start in life. 
Cynthia was also the mother of four sons, the youngest being the one who was just shot by his stepfather. Donald immediately became a suspect in the shootings and a massive search was started for him. His wife was buried at Macedonia Baptist Church in West Baltimore, where she had led the church choir for a number of years. Meanwhile, Donald's stepson fought for his life at John Hopkins Hospital. The detectives tried to find clues, evidence, anything that would explain the sudden turn of events in the correctional officer's home, but neighbors and family could not provide any answers, nothing. Cynthia's sister, she did give a comment to the press that said that Donald was possibly verbally and emotionally abusive to his wife, but that was it. No real motive, no real answers, no real explanations. Neighbors did hear the shots and said that the, the crime was shocking on all levels, especially because from all accounts, it seems like the couple got along. It seemed like everything was all right. One neighbor of the couple did comment to the Baltimore Sun and gave a statement that read, she was friendly, neighborly, good with her kids. I couldn't see any signs of trouble over there. As investigators look for clues and answers, an arrest warrant was issued for Donald. But shortly after the warrant was issued, days later, a state trooper found Donald's truck parked at a rest stop in Watertown, New York, upstate New York, just a few miles from the Canadian border. When the state trooper looked inside the vehicle, he saw the body of the wanted correctional officer with an obvious self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. With Donald's suicide, it left Cynthia's family with even more unanswered, unexplainable questions. Luckily, Cynthia's son did survive the shooting. Now, this crime was particularly notorious in Maryland because first off, you know, police officers are different than correctional officers. Correctional officers, you know, they have, I would say, almost the same level of stress, if not more. But um, it was notorious because he was a correctional officer. Basically, we don't know if he snapped. We don't know what happened. Either way, you got, your, your job is to protect and serve inmates. And here it is. He was eventually going to end up an inmate. Um, and it was shocking because there was no real, no signs of trouble in the marriage. Um, nobody really knows what led him to do what he did. And I can't understand the frustration of being so upset, so pissed, so out of it, so angry that you would shoot a 13 year old, your stepson, I made it. Um, I feel sorry for I feel for um, her remaining children, her other sons who had to live through something like this, losing a parent to a homicide, and especially at the other hands um, of the other parent is devastating to a child that has lasting effects that will spread all the way over until adulthood. And a lot of people don't realize that, that you know, that is, it's extremely traumatic to a child. That's something that I'm quite sure he'll, he'll never get over. 
I, I feel bad for, um, by all accounts, it sounds, you know, Cynthia was a good woman. She worked at, uh, she helped with disabled kids and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, disabled people that, uh, needed, uh, educations and stuff like that. She worked with them. She was patient. She was a good person. Um, it's just a lot of unexplainable, uh, questions that still are not answered about this case. I remember when this happened. Um, I just remember thinking that he was a correctional officer. I was not surprised hearing that he committed suicide right after this. You know, he lived that lifestyle day in, day out with correctional officers telling inmates when to get up, when it's time to go take a shower, when to eat and stuff like that. He was like, man, I, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. So he decided to take that way out. And, um, unfortunately that, that had a, a drastic outcome for both sides involved. Now, moving on, as we do in each episode, um, this episode will also profile an unsolved homicide. I put a lot of attention and focus on crimes and homicides that are unsolved because that basically is one of the main focuses of this podcast is to eventually, let's solve an unsolved crime. Let's solve an unsolved homicide that needs to be solved in Baltimore. There's plenty of them. You know, we got kids, we got women, we got uh, we got men, we got plenty of unsolved homicides here in, in Maryland. Pick one. So tonight, on this episode's Unsolved Homicide, is the shooting death of 17-year-old basketball protege John Crowder. In the sixth grade, the sixth grade, y'all, coaches already knew that John was going to be special. And by the eighth grade, John stood six feet, seven inches. He was a basketball standout and still growing. Known as Big John since the sixth grade, John impressed coaches and players with his basketball skills. John's mother had passed away from cancer when he was just two years old and his father was nowhere near or never in his life. He never even knew him. Raised by his grandmother in Northeast, Northeast Baltimore, which a lot of kids are, despite being extremely talented in basketball, the ghetto streets of Baltimore City lured John away, and at 15 years old, he found himself facing juvenile drug charges. Now, instead of sending him to jail, or maybe bookings, or probation, or community service, or anything like that, this judge gave the teenager the option of getting out of Baltimore and going away to a boarding basketball school in Texas. After he heard about this kid, you know, being talented in basketball, being so good and stuff like that, instead of getting him jail time, he's like, look, I'm gonna give you the option of getting out of Baltimore, going away to Texas, going to school there, honing your basketball skills. So at the age of 15, John took up the judge's offer he moved to Grand Prairie, Texas with his coach and their and the coach's family and he started attending the school called God's Academy. While away from Baltimore and a student at God's Academy, a local news crew profiled John in an article for the Dallas Morning News where John said he wanted to play for the NBA and move his family out of Baltimore. That was his dream. 
he said my family they live in they live in like a war zone and he was referring to where he had been raised at in northeast baltimore the coaches loved him all his teammates loved him but john missed baltimore and he missed his old friends in in baltimore and his coaches said that although john he didn't show it much dealing with you know losing his mother and not never knowing his father he was depressed and lonely without that you know what's the purpose of you know he felt like what's the purpose of being such a basketball standout and there's basically no validation for it. there's no real unconditional support he had the support of his coaches and teammates and family but sometimes it feels still feels like there's something missing the coaches said that that John also he had mood swings where his mood fluctuated from being grateful and happy about having this big wonderful opportunity to live out his dreams to his mood would fluctuate to like why am I even doing this why am I even out here he started calling and texting his old friends back in Baltimore and so on Easter on a visit back to Baltimore at his grandmother's house who lived on Kirk Avenue in Northeast Baltimore John just never went back to the school. He blew that chance to graduate from that prestigious, prestigious school in a whole nother state. He had been a student there for only six months before he just gave up and was just like, you know what, I can't do this no more. And because of the constant influences of his coaches, they just would not give up on him because he was that good. They ended up, they worked with him and even though he dropped out of that school, he still ended up at Towson Catholic High School, which is another good, a good public, I mean, a good private school in Towson, where he got good grades. And of course, he did his thing on a basketball court. When that school closed in 2009, John then enrolled at Our Lady of Mount Carmel in Essex, where he averaged 18 points and 11 rebounds for the season and was watched by Division I recruiters. Now, these are schools, let me tell y'all something. These are private schools. This is not like a public school. It costs money to get into these schools. Trust me, I know. But the coaches were working with this kid because he was that talented. They believed in him. They had faith in him. They were supporting him because they know that he was up against screwed up odds by not having basically parents in his life. So, Three months before he was killed, in an interview with the Baltimore Sun, John told reporters that he had received letters and offers from the University of Maryland, he received letters from Virginia Tech, he received letters from Clemson University, St. Joseph University, and in the summer, he had made plans to tour with the Nike Baltimore Elite AAU team. Despite all of this talent, all of this talent, all of this opportunity, a future so bright, it was like winning the lottery. I mean, especially coming out of Beemore. But John loved Baltimore. Like, why? Who knows? It's all I, I, I can't understand it. But the lure of the streets, the, the lack of real structure, the lack of real discipline, even though he had the obvious support of coaches where he could, you know, even live with them if he had to. The lure of that Baltimore unsupervised fast lifestyle kept bringing him back to his old neighborhood in East Baltimore at his grandmother's house 
where he could basically do whatever the fuck he wanted to do. On Monday, July the 5th, 2010, around 1 a.m., the police found John bleeding, lying in the front yard of a home in the 2600 block of Garrett Avenue. He was only two blocks away from his grandmother's home. John had been shot in his side. Barely alive, John was rushed to John Hopkins Hospital where he was pronounced dead a few hours later. When his coaches heard about John's murder, one of his coaches summed it up best when he basically blamed Baltimore City. He said, there is nothing here for a kid with talent. You need to get them away from here so stuff like this doesn't happen. John's funeral was held at Church of the Redeemed of the Lord on Old York Road, where one of his coaches was just too distraught to even attend the funeral. John's cousin said in a statement to the Baltimore Sun, he had everything in place to be successful. He had his grades. I felt like he was starting to understand it. And then, and then he just backslipped. Look, listen, people. Look at this. John was a wasted talent. And his murder still needs to be solved. I mean, it's a shame that John had lost... John had um, two brothers who had already gotten shot before. He had a brother that was already incarcerated. He had lost a best friend to homicide. You know, it's a shame that somebody that was so full of talent, talent to have a life just flush, flushed away from a homicide for no reason. I mean, the police obviously can they, they can't do everything themselves. So people, listen, listen. If you have any information that can lead to an arrest or a conviction, no matter how small you may think it is in cases like this, please call the Homicide Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also call them at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can send a text message to them at 443-902-4824. Or you can email them at homicide tips, that's tips with an S, at baltimorepolice.org. Once again, those numbers are cold case detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also call them at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can send a text message to 443-902-4824. Or you can email them at homicide tips with an S at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous, people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine tingling, hair raising episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, Be sure to check out the real, unedited, raw truth of how and why I got linked up with true crime. A lot of people think I just woke up one day and decided to do this. Like I said, I just jumped into criminals' minds and stuff like that. But nah, this was no overnight journey. This was a series of events that led me to examining criminals, um, profiling them, and just basically an interest into why criminals and murderers do what they do. 
Also, be sure to pay a visit to the new website, www.mdsmostnotoriousmurders.com. Once again, it's Marilyn is spelled mdsmostnotoriousmurders.com. Be sure to follow that website or check out the new website to get access on all of the episodes for all four seasons, as well as links to all of the books that are based off of this podcast entitled Marilyn's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Marilyn's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1. Um, also, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, as well as my local bestsellers, Child of Baltimore and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. Be sure to tune in next week Well, another high-profile, another high-newsworthy homicide in Maryland will be discussed, examined, and profiled on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a Savage Life production.